the title of the sermon um, this morning is um, The Household of Faith, The Christian Response to the Pandemic, Ancient Lessons Learned from the Early Church. So hopefully, um, and it's my prayer that the Lord will show up mightily and um, Use and anoint everything that I have to say and that would penetrate your hearts and your minds and your souls and that we will be blessed. Um, The last four Sundays, uh, we've been uh, really, really um, going through what it means to be uh, the household of faith, what it means to do life together. Um, in many ways, this has been such so foundational and so fundamental to kind of relearn how to do life together. Um, I think some people have thought, and, and rightly so, about this time, this 18 months of walking through this pandemic as almost living in exile because we're, caused, we're forced to move in ways that have been so different. And only now we're kind of gathering back and coming back into our church buildings. Um, It's been a sobering, sobering experience, to say the least. Um, I think last I checked um, this morning, the worldwide death toll from COVID-19 was nearing about 4.5 million deaths. And here in the United States alone, we're looking at about 650,000 deaths and almost 40 million cases. This has been a difficult time um, for everybody in different ways. And um, on a personal level, it's hit me on multiple levels. Yesterday, we, um, my extended family buried our cousin, um, Sudarshan, Dr. Sudarshan Siva, who was actually a nephrologist at, uh, in the state of Washington, in Washington, D.C. area, uh, 53 years old. And he leaves behind a daughter who is 11 and a wife. And, um, and they had a funeral service for him yesterday. And, and, and this hits close to home because he's a physician. He's a physician, and things like this are not supposed to happen to people who otherwise have no pre-existing conditions who are in the medical community. Um, they kept him alive for four months um, using an ECMO machine and, and fancy devices, um, and, and yet um, he didn't turn around. And, and so it's hit me on a personal level. Um, as a physician at Kaiser Permanente in Baldwin Park, um, I've marched the last 18 months with hundreds and hundreds of patients uh, who have been affected in deep ways, who've lost family members, some of whom have passed themselves, and uh, whose livelihood has just been crushed and affected in multiple ways. Even our church this time has not been easy for a lot. I know just in the last few weeks, our own congregation has been hit with family members passing away. Uh, Kim Barrios, Catherine Harris, Martin, uh, Scott, uh, you guys have lost your parents, and this we know this is a very difficult time for you, uh, be it COVID-related or not. 
And just when we thought that things were starting to get better and that maybe we were moving out of this season, up comes the Delta variant, the curveball. And um, what I'm seeing now as a Kaiser physician is sort of this state of, of political ideologies clashing like never before, the vaccinated clashing with the unvaccinated, the people who are okay with wearing masks versus those who don't want to wear it anymore, uh, for those businesses who want to open in certain ways, and they can. And these are all my patients, and I carry two or 3,000 of them, and I hear their stories every single day in painful ways. Ironically, just this weekend alone, the, the, as I was preparing for this sermon, um, what's been more disheartening to me than the division that we're seeing nationally and the politics over this issue has been sort of the, the division that we're seeing in the house of God, right, over this pa- pandemic. I have two or three emails just this weekend alone from pastors who are my patients in the local area. And they ask me the question, they're asking me for direction on how to guide their congregation that is so split in their ways. People have literally walked away from their congregation or are refusing to come in unless the senior pastor takes on a certain viewpoint. And so they're reaching out to me just because I'm their family medicine doctor, asking me, how do I shepherd this congregation? Impart to me all that you know from the medical field so that I can get a better grasp on this and and so I can better guide my flock. And so it's been disheartening to see that. These are not easy waters to navigate by any stretch of the imagination. Now, while this pandemic is really new to us as a generation and as a society, pandemics are not new to the church at all. You know, from Old Testament plagues and pestilences um, to the pestilences and plagues that, that hit the New Testament church and on through history, this is not a foreign thing to human civilization at all. There's much that we can learn if we just take the time to look back and see how the early church dealt with the pandemics of their time. Let's pray before we dive into God's word. Father, Lord, we just welcome welcome you into our midst. Lord, we ask that this morning, that you would just allow hearts to be open, that you would allow the things that separate us, that tend to put walls between us, just to fall aside, Lord, that we may come as brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the most living high God, and that we would be open, Lord, to taking a hold of the things that bind us through your word. Speak to us, Lord. Move us. Change us. Transform us, Lord, into your likeness. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. I want to jump into Scripture right away. And I'm going to read three pieces of Scripture back to back to back. Um, And so if you don't have your Bibles with you, please follow along 
up on top. Uh, and we're going to dive into what I call the dream scenario verse of the New Testament, right? If you could imagine what church can look like, a church that is so anointed, that is so invigorated, that so gets community right, that's all about evangelism, that figures out how to do it right, and they see the Lord blessing it and growing it in numbers daily. It's this passage, these five verses in Scripture, that gives you kind of an inkling into what the dream scenario state could look like. And it's, it's what we hear the, the physician Luke, who writes the book of Acts, um, talk about in describing the early church following the time of the Pentecost, following the time when, when the Holy Spirit has arrived and tongues of fire has descended upon um, the believers. And so turn with me, if you will, to Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. And Luke recounts the following. He says about this group, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Dream scenario. Churches ever since this time have been trying to replicate this model in every generation to get this right. This is what real community looked like. There was growth. There was signs and wonders. They moved as one unit. And get this, right in the middle of, of all of that, this the central thing, right? Every need was addressed. People sold their possessions, and wherever there was need in the community, that was addressed. Turn with me, if you will, to Galatians 6, verses 9 through 10. Paul addresses this to um, the church and, uh, and, and says this, Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Right? He says, look for the opportunity to do good to all people, and especially those who belong to the family of believers. Take care of your own is the message that, that he imparts to this church. Take care of your own. And we'll jump to something else he writes to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. 
as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And check this out. Keep every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. All right, why do I layer these three different pieces of Scripture side by side? Because I think in them, there's something very crucial that our church today really needs to hear. What it means to move as one. What it means to address every need. And what it means to do so, keeping the peace and the bonds of unity intact. Does that sound like the church that we hear about today? right now, in the midst of this pandemic. You know, in the outside world and within the church, um, what's interesting, if we look at this early church paradigm, this, what, what it talks about the Acts 2 church, is there's this juxtaposition, this putting next to each other, miracles, signs, wonders, along with church growth, along with kingdom expansion. And, and, and it's fueled by teaching. We do that. Preaching, we do that. Fellowshipping, breaking of bread, we do that. And the arrival and anointing of the Holy Spirit, whom we have access to. But it says the church took care of those in need. And that's the central thing that's sandwiched in between every other element that's mentioned here. Addressing the need of everybody within the church became a huge part of their MO, their method of operation. And the world recognized that. They recognized that. Bear with me, if you will. Um, I want to take you down sort of this exciting history lesson that I've now known for many years, um, being a health and society major at the University of Rochester in my college days, I got a chance to kind of dive into this stuff. And the things that I learned kind of blew me away many years ago as a young college student. But I want to share that with you because I think it's very relevant to this season right now. Now, most of us actually think about church growth and church history and some of your in some of your history classes you would have already learned this that the that and most historians will tell you this that the most explosive growth that happened in church history where there was widespread adoption of christianity it happened under the emperor constantine once he was converted amidst the byzantine empire right around 312 B.C., A.D. is when his conversion happens. And then the following year, he issues what would come to be known as the Edict of Milan, where he basically allowed um, the formal practice of Christianity across the entire Byzantine Empire. Most historians would kind of cite to this as the one big event. But I want to submit to you this morning that there was the public element that existed before and after his conversion that led to Christianity's explosive growth was embodied 
by the Latin word caritas, caritas, okay, which we translate as charity or love. This love, this charity in the ancient and early medieval world was just all about caring for those in need, right? Something that Christians excelled at with a unifying force, a force that was so radical at that time that it got the world's attention. Emperors turned around and looked at this body of believers who call themselves Christ followers, who were doing things that no cohort of a religious movement had ever before done in a concentrated way in the history of mankind. It got the attention of emperors. Let that sink in for, for a while. You know, let me, let me walk you through for just a second about the plagues that hit mankind in New Testament times and onwards and how these, this cohort of believers responded to the plagues of their time. You guys may have heard about the um, Antonine plague of the second century. Um, you know, most people say it's probably equivalent to modern-day smallpox. Well, we didn't have a vaccine for smallpox until the 1800s, right? So imagine this. This, this plague was so deadly that it ravaged populations through all of the Tigris to the Rhine River area. It knocked out 25% of the Roman Empire at that time. This was huge. But you know what happened during that time? When 25% of the empire was knocked out by this virus, Christianity exploded. It exploded because what the world was noticing that while people were dying left and right, these, this group that called themselves Christ followers, they would care for the sick. And they would challenge the notion of the time. The notion of the time was you got sick because the Greek multiple deities of the time um, were angry at you. Or they were capricious, right? They were moody. They didn't like you today, so they decided to inflict illness upon you. That was the pervasive notion in the Mediterranean area at that time. And this body of believers went in They cared for the sick in the most dangerous of situations. And what they did was they basically introduced the idea that no, sickness didn't exist because God was a moody God or God was angry with you. They submitted the idea to the world that that sickness came because it was a product of a broken creation in revolt against a loving God. And this got the attention of the entire world. Just fast forward a little bit to the next century. We come to the third century, and you may have heard about another plague called the Plague of Cyperion, okay? What today would be equivalent to Ebola or measles. And it's named really after the African bishop who gave colorful sermons describing actually what the plague was. Now, what was interesting about Bishop Cyprian's message to the world 
was that he told Christians of the day not to be consumed by grieving the lost who were already in heaven in the Lord's presence. But he said, go and double down your efforts to care for those that were living. Double down the efforts for those who were living. His fellow bishop, Dionysius, described how Christians, and I quote, heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need. Other people were starting to notice. A century later, even the very pagan emperor Julian looked back at this time, and he would complain how these group, this group of Galileans would care for even non-Christian people, right? The church historian Pontianus recounts this. He says that the good was done to all men during this time by this group, not merely to the household of faith. Wow. They were getting the attention of the world around them. For you history buffs and sociologists who know who Rodney Stark is, um, he claimed... Um, and he had the evidence to kind of back it up based on epidemiological numbers. He looked at the world map at that time, and he made a very acute observation. He said that the places where they had the greatest concentration of Christians actually had almost a 50% reduction in death rates. I mean, that's radical. Give me a drug that can drop the death rate of something by 50% from one community to another, and I bet you everybody in, the, in, in all communities will grab to it. And what's most exciting to me was that, the, you know, the whole idea of hospitals, right? As, Christ, as arose, actually, as Christian institutions utterly dependent upon... Um, Christian principles like hospitals, the evolution of healthcare in the world was actually shaped by the Christian church. It was actually foundational. I didn't know this when I started university, and so I was blown away by this. If you guys knew who Gary um, Ferngrain is, he's a PhD guy out of Johns Hopkins University. He says this, and I'm going to just read you the quote. The hospital was, in origin and conception, a distinctively Christian institution rooted in Christian concepts of charity and philanthropy. There were no pre-Christian institutions in the ancient world that served the purpose that Christian hospitals were created to serve. None of the provisions of healthcare in classical times resembled hospitals as they developed in the late 4th century. How cool is that? Now, don't get me wrong. Before hospitals became formalized, they grew out of these Christian communities caring for these sick people. But before that time, there were medical people around. They were the herbalists, the soothsayers, the people who in the ancient times took the Hippocratic Oath and then would train under apprenticeships of other healers of the area. But they were sort of local people that would go from town to town 
and maybe would have a success rate of 5 to 10% at best. And when their rates of success were starting to drop, they would quickly take all their goods and they would flee to another town. If you read the history of healthcare and how it evolved, that's how things were for generations leading up to, up to this time. But isn't that such a cool, radical idea to know that the concept of hospitals actually was birthed out of the early church movement? You know, if you look forward in the Middle Ages, you will know that monasteries and convents, right? 500s to 1400s we're talking about. They became the key medical centers of Europe, right? There was this juxtaposition, this coming together of faith communities and healing. The idea of sacrificial care continued to appear time and time and time again as generations evolved. You guys are probably familiar with the bubonic plague. At least you've heard that term. In 1527, right, when the bubonic plague hit Wittenberg, Germany, Martin Luther, the guy who was known as the father of the Protestant Reformation, the guy who basically went and nailed 95 theses to the, to the church of that time, um, calling out the reformations that needed to happen. Martin Luther, he refused to flee the city and protect himself when the bubonic plague hit. Rather, he actually stayed. He stayed and he ministered to the sick. And that decision was really costly. His daughter, Elizabeth, died because of that decision. It came at a great cost. And in reflecting back on her death and that experience, he subsequently wrote something, or wrote a letter to a friend. And many of you guys on social media platforms may have seen an excerpt of this letter kind of floating around on Facebook or Instagram or whatever outlet you use. Um, people have been talking about this the last few weeks. But this, I want you to bear this in mind, and I'm going to read this for you. This was written 500 years ago by a man who had no concept of germ theory. He didn't know about bacteria. He didn't know about viruses. You got to get to 1850 before Lewis Pasteur and Robert Koch come around that talk about discovering bacteria and viruses and their relationship to diseases. That was 1850s and beyond. We're talking about 1500 here. And take a look at the prophetic wisdom in what Martin Luther writes to his friend as he's sitting in that state of saying, no, I'm not going to flee from the place of need. I'm actually going to run to it. I'm not going to flee from the place of need. I'm actually going to run to it, and I'm going to stay put. He writes this to his friend 500 years ago. It's so eerily prophetic. I just want you to listen to this. I shall ask God mercifully to protect us, he writes to his friend. Because his friend is asking the question, why don't you get out of there? Your daughter just died. Get out of Wittenberg. He says, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I will fumigate 
I will purify the air. I will administer medicine and take medicine. I shall avoid place and persons where my presence is not needed in order to not become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and to cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God wishes to take me, and so he will surely find me, but I have done what he has expected of me, and so I am not responsible either for my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but go freely. This is God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. End quote. Wow. 500 years ago. Wisdom from the ancients. Now I know in our modern generation we, we have the benefit of knowing the entire ramifications or more of the ramifications of germ theory, of disease, and people might find this astonishing. But Luther's writing, I want to submit to you this morning, it captured the very heart and the very spirit of how the church has historically moved with regard to plagues. The church was willing to rise up and they were willing to take care of the sick And they were willing to address human needs head on, no matter the personal cost. They didn't run away from the human need. Instead, they ran to it. I want to say that again. They did not run away from human need. They actually ran to it. They took whatever precautions needed to be taken so that they could address the needs of the people both within the church and outside of it, right? Often at great personal cost and sacrifice. His daughter, Elizabeth, died because of this decision. They were willing to lay down their very lives for their fellow men. How radical a thought. How radical a thought. I'm just reminded of the Lord's words. Greater love, greater love, greater love, greater love has no man than this. That a man lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. I want you to ask yourself this morning, when the world in our nation thinks of the Christian church, Is that the first thought that strikes them, that this group of people will lay down their lives for me? Who are we today? Are we the type of people who've been so transformed by God that we actually run to meet human need? Or have we become a people who run away from situations of deep desperation and need? What is our moniker in this room, right? What is our calling card? What is our MO? What's our method of operation? What is our identity? How does the world outside these walls here at VCF 
see us. You know, I'm, I'm sharing this with you this morning from a place of, of having benefited from being on the other side of need. Long before I, I became a physician in the United States and, you know, had a comfortable, more than comfortable salary for the last 15 years of my life, um, I, I, I want to submit to you that my life was constantly filled with needs, if I was really honest with you. And long before I became a believer at the age of 15, my heart was actually softened by sacrificial ways that people from the church displayed towards me and my family in the midst of tremendous need and desperation that we went through. My heart actually was softened because the church reached out to my needs. Some of you are familiar with some of the stories. But you know I come from an island nation of Sri Lanka that had been mired in civil war for 30 years. And um, when ethnic riots broke out in the early 80s um, and riots happened and our home was demolished and our car set afire and my family held at knife point, um, the real reason why we escaped Actually, we belong to the Tamil ethnic minority group. And, and the real reason why we escaped, and I'm here alive today, is because I had brothers in the Lord who were Sinhalese, who, who actually belonged to the majority group, who hid us in their homes when the militants came looking for us. They hid us in their bathrooms, in their closets, as the knocks raged on the door. Do you have any Tamil people that you are harboring in your home? If the answer was yes, the door gets opened, we get thrown in cars, and and we're executed there on the spot. But I'm alive here today because my loving Singhalese brothers and sisters in the Lord, in the church, they put their lives at stake. And they hid us in their homes, knowing that if we were exposed, their lives would be in jeopardy. They saw that need, and they stepped up big time. Having lived through a civil war in my childhood years, I can tell you, when I think about sacrificial love, I think about hiding in bungalows and hiding in shelters and listening to bombs dropping on our homes every night. And I remember all the stores being closed, right? You know, it, it, here we fight over toilet paper, okay, with the whole pandemic. I lived in an 18-month period where every major grocery store is closed, and whatever little people could scrounge, they would have to split between five, six, or ten families. And I remember vividly as a five-year-old watching the way aunties and uncles who had very little themselves, they would do the math and try to figure out how much to give to their two or three children. And even though they had so little, they would take that, whatever they could spare, and they would give it to us. 
there would be days when the uncles and aunties would not eat themselves because they wanted to make sure all the children had enough sustenance just to make it to the next day. That's what sacrificial love looked like for me when I was a five-year-old kid. After coming to the United States at the age of seven, I remember members of the Christian community, they would kind of just drop off bags of clothes and toys for my brother and I. I I think we probably lived on hand-me-downs for the first three, four years of our, our time over here. But they would just come and drop off things um, as needed. And, and sometimes we wouldn't even necessarily know which auntie or uncle dropped off the things for us. But growing up right here in Pasadena, in Marengo, that would be something that would happen. And so we were really, really grateful for that. Fast forward to 93, and my mom dies of cancer just when we were getting our foot um, set as, as immigrants, right? And I remember what it did for me in the midst of that devastation to have a handful of aunties and uncles who sacrificed time away from their families to intentionally invest in me in the months to come. They would just show up. They would just take me out. And they, sometimes they would not say anything, they would not say anything. It was, it was, as a kid, as a 15-year-old kid, it was kind of awkward. I would just, I would go to Victory Park with one of them, or I would go to McDonald's with one of them. And, and sometimes we would just sit, and they would just let me sit. And sometimes I would just sit, and the tears would come down. And all I needed to know was that they were right there. That's what sacrificial love looked like for me. So much so that when I ultimately gave my life to the Lord at age 15, I remembered that love. I remembered that sacrificial love when people just showed up within the church in my moment of desperate need. This morning, I got up around 5 o'clock, and I had the privilege of getting on a Zoom call to wish my Uncle Joe, his 90th birthday. Daniel, if you could just put that picture up. I just wanted to share this with you guys. That's my Uncle Joe. That's my mom's sister's husband. And this is the most precious picture I have of him and I. And it means so much to me because... You see, in the 90s, after I lost my mom, it was just my dad and my brother and myself and my grandma, and we had a cousin that was living with us. But when you lose your mom at that age, it shakes the very foundation. Like, she's the glue that kept us together, right? And, and you take a mom out of the home, you're just destroyed. You're destroyed. No amount of theology at age 15 is going to comfort you, really, at that age. And I remember, at that age, um, what happened was my mom's older sister and her husband, Uncle Joe, they left Sri Lanka, and they actually said, you know what? You are in great need right now. 
we're just going to come and we're going to leave countries and we're going to uproot our whole life and we're just going to come and live with you and we're going to walk with you through this journey because this heartache is too unimaginable for anybody to bear or think of. That movie wheel that you see here, right there, the, the movie player, he would go on to become the most famous Tamil movie producer in the history of our country's generation. Bollywood types from India would come to Sri Lanka to film movies with him. So he's legendary in Sri Lanka, right? Like when I go to family functions, people refer to Uncle Joe as the famous movie producer. Now, when they left Sri Lanka... He was still in the midst of production and other things to continue working out his legacy, his craft. Um, and, and while he was there, he had to leave all of that behind. He left that behind to hold this guy. This is 40 years old. This picture is 40 years old. But that's what love looks like when the church decides they're going to step up And go into places of need. No strings attached. No strings attached. So I got to thank my uncle today on his 90th birthday for the way in which he and his wife, they just stepped into our lives and they made our family feel more whole for many years um, after my mom's loss. I would soon go off to university in the mid-90s, and then on to medical school. And I would tell you, even though I was a believer then, there were emotional voids in my life that losing a mom leaves on you that doesn't get fixed in one or two or three years. And I can remember the, the new aunties and uncles that I would meet in Rochester, New York. People in their 60s and 70s and 80s that would just have me over to their homes after church. People that would meet with me during the middle of the week, during my study breaks, and they would just pour into me. They would just pour into me. They would invest in me. There was nothing that they were going to get out of it themselves necessarily, except to know that they have deposited in me. And so I'm coming to you this morning from a place of having been in need for so much of my life, right? And, and I have been the recipient of the church just stepping into my life time and time again to meet those needs. I experienced the love of God through the church. So when a serious, I had, I had experienced it as, as a five-year-old, as a seven-year-old, as a nine-year-old, as a 15-year-old. So when a serious Christian spoke into my life, I always listened and I remained open. They weren't perfect people by any means. They had their flaws and they often would argue against each other. But they always kept Jesus at the core And they were able to always put aside their differences when it came to addressing my needs. The way they went about sacrificing towards me, you know what it did? 
It built up street credibility. It's built up street cred in my eyes, in my heart, in my mind, in my soul. So that when the gospel message came to me through their words, at age 15, my heart was softened and I received it. I received it because I had, I had known what sacrificial love looked like. And so I want us to ask ourselves this morning, church, what is the perceived reality of the American church right now? What's our response to this COVID-19 pandemic? When people think of us, when people think of VCF, when people think of, of our church as a whole in this nation, is it marked by love and personal sacrifice? Or is it marked by politics, division, and self-preservation? Now, I know the media has gone crazy with this. And, and the narrative that it has spun by highlighting extreme examples is not really helping the situation, right? And the, but the church hasn't really stepped in um, to help with the situation either. Like, we've fallen short of Paul's exhortation to keep the unity of the Spirit. Let me reread for you that scripture to the church in Ephesus. As a prisoner for the Lord, Ephesians 4, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Here it is. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I realize that even as we sit here this Sunday morning in our congregation, we may have individually different political opinions, thoughts, and convictions. Right? As I look around and I see 50, 60 some odd people, we may each draw for ourselves a little square and say, we belong to the group that supports this politician, that adopts this amount of information from the medical community, that will follow these preachers, and that's the square I'm drawing for myself. Right? I... I I fully am aware that we may have 60 such squares drawn if I were to poll all of you here this morning, right? And I don't minimize that in any way. There are dis- if I just talked to you, there would be disagreements about masks, vaccines, schools, business closures, personal rights, constitutional rights, societal norms, yada, yada, yada. And we will go on and on about focusing on all the unique ways in which we can distinguish each other, each each of ourselves from each other. And I want to ask you this morning, will we let the precious things, will we let the precious things that bind us together as sons and daughters of the most living high God speak more loudly than anything else? I'm going to ask that question again. 
Like will the things that bind us as brothers and sisters in the Lord that cuts across every generation, that cuts across every racial group, that cuts across old and young, rich and poor, that cares nothing about socioeconomic class or historical backgrounds, but that says we are one in the Lord. And that thing, that cord that binds us is going to speak more loudly than all the other secondary and tertiary things that, that may distinguish us and give us our nuanced opinions. Think about that. You know, my mom that I alluded to, um, you've heard about her. My brother and I often share stories when we preach up here. But I want to tell you, I, I've been trying to figure out over the years what her secret sauce was, right? Why was she so effective? She died at the age of 44 from a really aggressive form of uterine cancer. And here I am, 43, um, and I've, I've lived without my mom physically in my life now, you know, for 25 plus years. And she was one of the most effective people that I have ever known, but she had such a short life. And I was trying to figure out what, what is that? She was not an eloquent speaker. She was not a biblical scholar. She didn't have seminary training. What made her so effective? Right? What was her secret sauce? She's the woman that would cook meals. And as I'm finishing up my homework at 8 or 9 o'clock and trying to watch Nitrider or A-Team or my favorite TV shows or watch a Dodger game, she would tell us to get in the car and she would make her rice and curry meals and take it to the sick at 10 at nighttime. I don't care if it was a school night. She didn't care that it was a school night. She was the kind of woman that she, she, she had very little financially but she would always find a way to give to those who had less than her. Always. She allowed herself to be stretched in ways. Some people say that that might have been ultimately what killed her. But she allowed herself to be stretched completely to bless others in times of desperate need. Like she was a master of that. And she did it in, in very genuine, sincere ways. She, she, she preached the gospel without using words, right? St. Francis of Assisi. She lived that. So much so that when she spoke, and it was often in gentle ways, people would listen both within the church and in the world. We would be surrounded by non-Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, Muslims, who, when my mom, Pavala, invited them to come to church or to our Christmas celebration at our home, they would come. They would, they would, it would be the only Christian household that they would come to, not because her theology was that eloquent or not because she articulated the gospel by walking people through the Roman road or, or giving them Bible classes and lectures, 
No, it's because she won them over by meeting them wherever their need was. She was a master at that. So much so that the most stubborn people that we knew, relatives and family friends, they would just melt because of her kindness and her love. They would just melt. They would just be quiet in her presence. Like literally, you would have people with esteemed degrees and and who would argue in, in and have debates about religion and all of that. But when my mom spoke, they listened because she had street, street cred. So much so that on her deathbed, she was able to minister to people as she was dying because she had built a lifetime of needing people in their places of desperate need. Whenever and wherever, no strings attached. Church, as we wind up this morning, you know, this message is not radically confusing. It's actually very simple. But I believe it is very, very profound and timely. This pandemic season, it affords you and I an extraordinary opportunity to rise up as one body and demonstrate that the love of God exists to a world that desperately needs to be reminded, especially during these times, that they have not been forgotten by a loving God. You know, many of you, even in this room, have already started doing that. And the world is starting to notice. They have been noticing for the last 18 months. Some of you have taken food for people who tested positive for COVID-19. And I know of cases where you have actually delivered food for not one day, not three days, not seven days, not 10 days, but 14 days while they were in quarantine because they couldn't go shopping themselves. You have taken children from parents who were COVID positive, and you have housed their kids until their parents got better and then released their children back to their parents. You have prayed night and day, both virtually and in person, for those who have fallen ill. For those of you who are part of the daily prayer times that happen virtually through the church. I don't know if you remember Pastor Ko and Ji Hong and Rajiv and uh, Pastor Stephen sharing that there was like a 150-page volume of prayer requests that have been answered faithfully by the Lord. You have comforted those in compassion after they've lost loved ones. And this has been real. People have lost their mothers and fathers Um, Just this last two weeks alone, you've donated your time to help with those home projects that your skill sets can fix. You've forgiven debts. I've heard stories about people forgiving debts of those who are unable to pay back um, those who owe you given the tough circumstances. You've gone shopping for people at high-risk times when we have surges. You have, I I love the way somebody put it, you have given away much and then you now simply live. You live more simply so that others can simply live. You live more simply 
so that others can simply live. In 1 John 3, verses 16 through 18, we hear this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. Let us not love with words or speech, but with action and truth. Action and truth. Church, I want to leave you guys this morning with this, this thought. As you think about your life right now, on August 29th, 2021, where is the need in your land? Seriously, just think about that. Where is the need in your land? As you march forth this week, see what the Lord shows you. If you can't really answer that question in a practical way, Ask the Lord to show you, and I promise you that he will. Maybe the need will come from a neighbor that you live on the same street with. Maybe it will come from a co-worker. Maybe it will be an extended family member. Maybe it'll be a relative. Or maybe it'll just be a complete stranger, a one-time interaction you have with a stranger passing you on the street. Would you be willing to move in a way where you're willing to just lay aside all politics and just come together sort of as a church body to take care of human need and in doing so, demonstrate the incredible love of God? You know, the early church, the early church had their opportunities with the plagues of their day. And they ceased that opportunity. We're 18 months in. We got a lot of work to do. We got a lot of things to fix. What will we do with the plague of our day? Let the chains that bind us to the Lord Jesus Bring us to move in one accord to meet the great needs that surround us with unity and the bonds of peace. The world is watching. The world is watching. They have been watching for generations. And they are watching now. How will the church arise? How will the church arise? How will you arise? May salvation come. May salvation come. It came in ancient times. It came in medieval times. It came in centuries past. 
And I believe the Lord is telling us this morning, it will come again. It will come again. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for this precious time. Lord, I know there might be people here today that have been so jaded by the division, that have been so jaded by the politics, that have been so jaded by all kinds of secondary loyalties to things. Um, And they look at the church not as a beacon of hope and an instrument of God's love, but as something that's been broken so much so that that the that it's lost its credibility, Lord. And I pray, Father, that if there's anybody among us who feels that way, that this morning would be the time you begin to restore that, Lord. That you begin to change the tide. That you would open eyes, that you would penetrate hearts, that you would move spirits in such a way that everyone here this morning will know the promise that you give to us, Lord, that salvation will come, that salvation will come if we just move in one accord. That if we take with seriousness, utmost seriousness, the need to identify need and to meet it, no matter the personal cost. And to be able to do this, Lord, with bonds of peace, with bonds of unity. Lord, I pray that you would just restore hope into each one of us here this morning that we can indeed be the church that you want us to be. That we indeed can be the church of Acts 2 in 2021. That we not only will commune together and fellowship together and and learn and teach and preach and break bread as we have been doing, Lord, but that we will be a people that will meet every need, that we will take care of our own within the church. And then wherever we see need outside, we will be people that we will run to the need and not away from it that the world may see us in the same way they saw the church of old. The church that said that no matter the sickness, no matter the desperation, we are there with the oppressed. We are there with the hurting. We are there with the broken. We are there with the less fortunate. We are there with the poor. We are there with the orphans. We are there with the ones without parents the ones that are the widows, the ones who may be lame, who may be blind, who may have handicaps, who are less fortunate, who are in places of desperate need, that we be the church that rises to to address those needs, Lord, in the church and in the world, that we would be marked by that, that that would become our moniker, that that would become our calling card, that we would move in such a way that when we speak gospel truth, the world will know that we have lived gospel truth. 
and that salvation may come. That you will grow our numbers. That souls will come to know you. Lord, help us do our part. Help your church to rise. In Jesus' name. Amen.